Get ready for a week-long celebration of music, community and fabulous fun with Joy Radiothon 2024. Joy has the largest collection of rainbow podcast content in the world and you can help keep us out loud and proud by donating during Joy Radiothon 2024. Just go to joy.org.au slash radiothon. Mark it in your calendars because Joy Radiothon returns June 1st to 7th and remember, we all flourish with joy. Taking a look at the issues surrounding the health and well-being of our LGBTIQ plus communities. This is Well, 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 brought to you by the team from Thorn Harbour Health on Joy and the Community Radio Network. Amelia Arnold is a familiar voice on Joy and has visited us on Well, Well, Well a number of times. We're very happy to have Amelia back. Amelia is a bisexual queer woman whose professional expertise spans research, research translation and service delivery in the areas of sexual and reproductive health, fertility, mental health, lived experience work and LGBTIQA plus service experience. Amelia works coordinating the training and capacity building work within the Sexual and Reproductive Health Promotion Team at Women's Health in the North, that's WIN. And Amelia also works as a research associate with the Growing Queer Families Alliance within the Centre of Research Excellence Health in Preconception and Pregnancy at Monash Monash University. I nearly got through. I nearly got through. (laughs) There's a long list of accolades there. Tonight we are discussing a research paper Amelia co-authored with colleagues from the Growing Queer Families Alliance alongside Jess Permazel, Dr Ruth McNair, Jacob Thomas, Dr. Rhonda Brown and Professor Helen Scuteris. Amelia just got back from Glasgow in Scotland where she presented this paper at the Sexuality and Social Work Conference. Hello, Amelia. Hi, Rach. How are you going? I'm glad I got through that uh, intro, that's for sure. (laughs) Oh, my God. Every time you do my intro, I die a little bit. (laughs) Um, But thanks for having me on. It's always a pleasure joining you folks on Well, Well, Well. Now, um, let's... uh, uh, start with earlier this year you were a guest on our show about the upcoming LGBTIQ plus women's health conference and you mentioned a paper that was about to be published that looked at LGBTIQA plus experiences of preconception and pregnancy care it's now been published can you tell us it about has. that article and um, what's, what it's meant for you to have this research out there Yeah, for sure. So we were really fortunate um, to have a systematic review which looked at the experiences of LGBTIQA plus uh, communities in preconception, pregnancy and birth, um, published in the Journal of Midwifery uh, last month, which was very, very exciting. Um, Part of that was um, also being invited uh, along with the research team that you just mentioned to be guest uh, editors for a special edition looking at LGBTIQA plus experiences um, for communities who are navigating um, creating their families or growing their families. So that was a real honour to uh, be able to guest edit that that journal and the submissions that were coming through. Uh, but our, our article specifically is a systematic review, which uh, basically means um, that we looked at the research in... Um, the reproductive health space that spoke to the experiences of sex, sexuality and gender diverse people. So what's out there, what research exists um, and what is it telling us? The systematic review that we did um, 
included 37 articles, and most of that research um, was conducted in the US and Canada. So 10, um, 10 articles came from US and 10 from Canada, um, and primarily looked at the experiences of lesbian cisgender women, um, non-heterosexual women or, or co-mothers was another um, term that was used within the research non-binary people and their partners who were birthing um, and also a small number of those studies looked at the experiences of healthcare professionals who were working with LGBTIQA plus communities. So it was great to have um, that systematic review, not only great to participate in that um, with my colleague Jess um, as co-authors and with the rest of the expertise of the research group. Um, be able to get a really comprehensive understanding of what the evidence base for LGBTIQA plus communities who are navigating the mainstream uh, healthcare system in having their families um, and creating their families and birthing their children. Um, it was great to uh, have a bit more of an understanding of what the evidence base is. So what we then um, did, Jess and myself travelled over to Glasgow in Scotland uh, just recently to present the findings of um, that systematic review at the Sexuality and Social Work Conference. Um, and then we also held a uh, workshop with uh, social workers um, and other conference attendees on what uh, best practice can look like in, um, in to LGBTIQA plus communities. So summarising those findings um, from within the systematic review and um, communicating and sharing with conference attendees what that can look like in practice. Amelia, I suppose you've spoken to us a little bit about um, what was involved in the process of doing that systematic review, I mm -hmm. guess. Why is it important? Uh, why is it crucial in, in uh, carrying out further research um, and work in this area? So one of the reasons um, that we approached um, a systematic review was that we wanted to know what the current evidence base was um, and we did find that there was limited research in this area in Australia um, and as Australian queer researchers that was really useful information to have um, because it then provides um, confirmation that more research is needed to be done in this space. So when you're scoping, when you're considering doing research in a in a particular area, uh, literature review or systematic review is integral to understand what's already out there. Um, and so from that uh, process of doing the systematic review, it, what became very clear to us was that more research definitely needs to be done within Australia that speaks to the local experiences of sex, sexuality and gender diverse people in having their families, building their families, what family formation looks like for LGBTIQA plus communities here, what experiences of the mainstream healthcare system and the assisted reproductive treatment system looks like. Um, so it was very helpful for us um, to understand that and what directions future research, it, it informed what directions future research could go in. Um, Amelia, some people, I imagine many people probably wouldn't even be familiar with the term preconception. Can you tell us what is involved in preconception and what do we need to consider before pregnancy? Huge question. <laughs> um, preconception is basically any time um, before 
you conceive um, a child or a pregnancy or someone conceives a child or a pregnancy. Um, if you are wanting to grow your family, uh, if you know that you want to have children um, and you're able to carry a pregnancy, um, then to me, preconception is quite a period of time because um, what we know in some queer relationships is that we might need some help in uh, growing our families or building our families or beginning our families. So when we might need some additional help in that space, um, there's a lot of thinking that might need to go into that. So if you need to use a donor, for example, so someone um, who is providing you with donor sperm or donor eggs, um, that's something that needs to be considered well in advance um, if you're planning on going through a clinic um, instead and still wanting to use um, donor sperm or donor eggs, then financially that's something to prepare for. Um, if you're wanting to conceive at home um, with the support of a partner or partners um, and maybe plus or minus donors, figuring out how you want to grow your family from my perspective, is very important in the queer experience of preconception because um, in some relationships, there, um, some queer relationships, they are able to conceive at home with a partner. Um, for some people, that's not the case. And so it requires more thinking, more planning, potentially um, financial planning, logistics planning. What do I want my family to look like and how can I achieve that? So when I talk about preconception, it can mean all of those things as well as um, what do I need to put into place before I grow my family? Um, are there health uh, things that I need to consider or address? Um, what conversations might I want to or need to have with people who are going to be within my family? What's my family going to look like? So when I talk about preconception, it um, includes all of those things. And for some folks who are then having to um, interface with uh, the healthcare system, either mainstream or otherwise, um, making some plans for what that might look like as well. You alluded to, I suppose, some of those LGBTIQA plus experiences um, around preconception or, or when people are considering pregnancy. I suppose, mm -hmm. what are <clears throat> some of the LGBTIQA plus experiences that you um, had uh, uncovered or, or realised exists to a greater extent through this literature review beyond preconception? Cool. So as in what are some of the um, themes that we identified through the systematic review yes. as experiences? Yeah. So the main uh, themes that we identified through the systematic review of the evidence base for LGBTIQA plus folks um, who were in the preconception, pregnancy um, or postpartum period um, well, themes that emerged was the unavailability um, of information, services and support for LGBTIQA plus folks that mainly spoke to uh, the experiences of sex, sexuality and gender diverse experiences. So um, absence of information that was inclusive um, of our communities and our experiences, um, the reliance on self-research or um, having to speak to people that you know who have navigated um, a fertility clinic, for example, um, or a donor program, for example. Um, the 
burden being on self information gathering um, and which can uh, then delay your own treatment. Um, it can put delays on um, the creation of your family because you're having given um, the way forward yourself um, and that information not necessarily being readily available. Um, another under that theme of unavailability of information, we also heard that um, some services or supports or care or treatment, whatever um, word feels best, um, felt inaccessible to some LGBTIQA plus folks. Uh, we know that specifically in reproductive health care and sexual spaces with a cis normative expectation. So any folks um, who don't fit within that cis normative expectation um, then have difficulty in navigating what is very gendered uh, healthcare provision. So um, continually interfacing with um, systems like Medicare, where you may have a different legal name recorded on your Medicare, um, Medicare card, for example, the um, demographic information that's provided within the healthcare service that you're accessing um, might be non-trans inclusive, for example, um, a lack of then staff or education to help people navigate that process. So that was the first theme was unavailability of information, services and support. Uh, the second theme that um, came out of the systematic review was interpersonal competencies of healthcare staff. So individual um, literacy or familiarity of healthcare service providers with LGBTIQA plus specific uh, experiences. So having uh, poor communication between um service users and people in service delivery roles, um, a lack of being involved in decision making. So by virtue of having to go through a the healthcare system, which, you know, for some LGBTIQA plus folks, we don't actually need um, intervention in a medical sense. Um, there isn't necessarily infertility or um, a pathology. It's just we need some extra um Help. We need some extra ingredients. We some of us just need sperm. Some of us just need eggs. Um, we just that process can be medicalized when it doesn't necessarily need to be. Um, and so decision making around what creating a family could look like is taken out of your hands. Um, for some folks, that was also um, they also reported um, a lack of affirming experiences. So. Um, not having their trans identity affirmed, not having their sexuality identity affirmed um, in a mainstream healthcare space um, and a lack of uh, literacy or um, training that is specific to the experiences of sexuality, sex and gender diverse folks in um, health, reproductive healthcare. That was the second theme. Um, we had two more. The third being um, heterosexist or cissexist expectations um, of how people interface with the healthcare system. Um, so similar to the previous theme, um, heterosexual assumptions or cis, um, um, six, cissexist assumptions about um, what your family looks like, um, what names you use to describe people in your how you want to have a achieve a pregnancy, how who is going to carry a pregnancy, etc. 
Um, and then finally, discrimination and traumatization was um, the final theme that um, that came out of the existing evidence base. So, uh, where people were refused treatment um, based upon their sexuality, sex or gender, um, people experienced discrimination because of their identity or their uh, um, and poor episodes of care that people received, um, which led to um, increased dysphoria or a diminished sense of um, self or potentially birth trauma. They were the main themes that, that came out of the existing evidence base, um, which is useful to know um, this is how some LGBTIQA plus folks are interfacing with the mainstream healthcare system because then we, with that knowledge, we can then um, advocate for changes um, and do further research in a local setting as well. What could people do when they face that inequity and discrimination? Is there somewhere they can uh, contact or strategies they can use to advocate for their rights uh, to safe healthcare? Oh, that's such a great question, Jack. And I, I wish there was a place where people could go um, so that the burden isn't always on self-advocacy. Um, I think that's different um, healthcare uh, settings is the burden um, of advocacy is on the individual um, when they do experience care that is not affirming or is dangerous or harmful. Um, the burden is then to tell someone about it, to complain, to um, to make noise. And, and we also know that when you have experienced poor care or you have experienced addict, using has to happen before you're able to potentially advocate for yourself, right? Um, so it, it's really difficult because um, there are folks who want to see something change for other LGBTIQA plus individuals um, for the benefit of our communities down the track. But the, the, the way to make that happen is you have to complain and you have to re, relive that experience and you have to go into it in detail. So it, it's a really tricky thing. And I think... I personally, as a researcher, am so grateful when people do share their stories um, in these kinds of settings because then we do have evidence that people who are in um, policy or advocacy roles can then draw upon um, and feed back to people who are in decision-making positions um, around how our reproductive health and assisted reproductive treatment and um, birth spaces do do look and and what is needed from workers in that space. Um, so I, I wish there was a, a specifically a place where people could go. Um, one avenue potentially is speaking with BATA um, if you're in, in NAM or in so-called Victoria, which is the Victorian Assisted Reproductive Treatment Authority. Um, they're an organisation that does um, oversee a lot of work in the assisted reproductive treatment space. Um, and would be an organisation potentially to contact. Um, alternatively, um, at the moment, there is also a, a birth injury or birth trauma uh, inquiry that's going on um, that's been organised through the New South Wales State Government, which is open to submissions from people um, across so-called Australia. So that is closing next week, I believe. Um, so if people are wanting to potentially contribute their experiences there, that could be another avenue. Um, and 
I guess, in, in lieu of uh, being able to um, complain directly or um, if people have had um, experiences that are less than ideal or discriminatory or harmful at worst, um, we encourage people to share those experiences if they're able to when there are call-outs for our research in this space so that we can draw upon the stories of our communities and utilise them to advocate for changes um, within our healthcare system. We saw that happen um, a few years ago. There was the independent review into assistive reproductive treatments in Victoria and um, around so-called Australia, um, which um, ended in um, 2019. We had a report um, that was called the Gorton Review. And one of the findings of that review was that all uh, assisted reproductive treatment providers within Victoria were expected to undertake capacity building or um, training specific to the experiences of LGBTIQA plus communities. Um, so that, that was great. And that outcome wouldn't have happened if our communities weren't so willing to share their experiences of navigating a mainstream healthcare experience or clinic um, and sharing what that was like and advocating for um, better experiences for future uh, patient service users, um, individuals who are growing their families. So that's something that people can do. Um, outside of those more formal kind of um, strategies or, um, or options, uh, connecting with other LGBTIQA plus families um, can be really healing um, and can be really helpful for people who are at the start of their journey. Um, so hearing from people who have navigated um, the same experiences that are in front of you or um, that importance of shared experience, shared connection, other people who have a family that looks like yours, other people who are moving towards having a family that looks like yours. Um, what we heard overwhelmingly in the systematic review was that connecting with other LGBTIQA plus parents um, or people who were planning for parenthood was so helpful in the sharing of resources, um, in the sharing of um, experiences that are relevant to our communities. Um, it was really nourishing. It was really healing. Um, connecting with people who understand what your family looks like. Um, and so that could be another opportunity for folks either at the start of their journey um, towards rainbow family formation or who already have a rainbow family um, and are looking to connect with other people. Um, we do also have um, Rainbow Families Victoria, which are currently operating out of Switchboard Victoria, which is fantastic. Um, so shout out to those folks who are throwing some um, great events for Rainbow Families over the coming months. Um, and there are also through people's local councils, um, there's the option to connect in with other Rainbow Family playgroups or um, see if there are other, I guess, peer-based um, support groups or um, networks out there for to connect with and meet other people that have family like yours. Amelia, let's talk a little bit about the conference that you attended in Glasgow, the Sexuality and Social Work Conference, where you presented this paper. Can you take, tell us a little bit about uh, how um, some of your favourite memories or takeaways from that, that, that conference and any other presentations or findings that have actually stuck with you? Well, it was really 
fantastic to be uh, within a conference that was centering the experience of sexuality diversity and gender diversity within social work. So um, I was really grateful for that, especially because it was an international conference. And uh, Jess and myself went over and presented the findings of our systematic review, but also um, facilitated a workshop around what can um, LGBTIQA plus affirming practice look like in a mainstream setting just for um, participants who, who might be there and who might be interested to learn that information. But for me, it was really also humbling to hear from uh, researchers and, and workers from other countries where they're the laws and protections that are in place for LGBTIQA plus communities are, are nowhere near what we have in, in Australia. And, you know, it was very humbling hearing some researchers coming along and sharing that within their country that they're working in, it's criminalised still to be LGBTIQA plus, um, that people can't share their sexuality or gender when they're navigating um, creating a family that um, only one parent is able to be put on the birth certificate, for example, um, that people can't share um, or attend school if they're in a same-sex or um, queer relationship for fear of their, their child being, being harmed or bullied. Um, so it was humbling to hear stories of what parenting can look like in other countries um, around the globe. Um, and it was also really inspiring to hear the other areas um, of practice that people um, are engaging with in uh, relation to sexuality, sex and gender. Um, for me, my favourite uh, presentation was a keynote that was delivered by an incredible professor in the US whose work intersects with sexuality and also social work, health promotion, sexuality education, sex education, um, who practices from a kink affirming perspective and from a uh, sex work affirming perspective and um, areas that, you know, five, ten years ago, um, even now in some um, practices of social work um, could be viewed, um, you know, from a really conservative lens. And so it was really inspiring to hear how people integrate so many different aspects of their queer lived experience into the research work that they're doing. Um, plus it was just nice to have a, a conference that focuses on shared queer experience and how we use that in our work, but also um, how we do the work when we're working with other queers as well. Um, so I was really fortunate to to be able to attend that and share what we uh, what we work we had done, but also learn from others. And I think that's a beautiful part of a conference. I guess off the back of the Sexuality and Social Work Conference, what's next? Are there more publications on the way or other key activities um, happening related to this work? So the Research Alliance is, um, now that we have this systematic review and it's informed um, that there does need to be more work in this space, that is the plan. We are looking to do some more research into what um, what the state of LGBTIQA plus experiences in Australia um, of reproductive health care and sexual health care is. Um, we're also endeavouring to uh, do a, a project in the next few months that centres uh, rainbow families and the strengths that rainbow families have. 
um, and what rainbow families can look like. So um, we saw within the marriage equality campaign and a lot of other um, campaigns for um, equality um, on this continent, we've, we've seen, you know, some portrayals of rainbow families, but we're really interested to show from a strengths-based perspective the diversity um, that our families can have, what our families can look like. Is there one parent? Are there two parents? Are there three parents? Um, are there donors? Are there surrogates? Um, are there many members of chosen family who are involved in bringing up children? Um, what can our families look like? And um, what is the strength and power that we have within our families? And what can non-LGBTIQA plus communities learn from um, our families. I feel like a lot of um, research can focus on the um, non-strengths, so what are some difficulties that we come up against, what are some barriers, but we have so much strength and resilience um, within our families that it's important to be able to share that with the world as well, especially um, in a political climate where um, our events are being challenged or cancelled or seen as um, extreme when in actual fact we know that um, these events are, are nourishing and connecting for communities and also um, just generally story time. <laughs> so um, we think it's really important to um, continue to understand what the experiences of LGBTIQA plus people are in mainstream healthcare, but also demonstrate um, the incredible resilience and strength within our communities and share those stories more broadly as well. Amelia Arnold, uh, Research Associate from the Growing Queer Families Alliance within the Centre of Research Excellence, Health and Preconception and Pregnancy at Monash <laughs> University. It's a long title. Uh, thank you so much for joining <laughs> us this week on Well, Well, Well. No worries. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure speaking with you folks. Thanks for listening to Well, 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 supported by Thorn Harbour Health on Joy and the Community Radio Network. For more LGBTIQ plus health and wellbeing and much more, check out Thorn Harbour on social media at Thorn Harbour or via the website thornharbour.org. This podcast was produced by Joy Media. You can support Joy's diverse sound and diverse community this June by donating to Joy Radiothon 2024. Go to joy.org.au slash radiothon. And remember, we all flourish with joy.